Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. After George Zimmerman was acquitted in the fatal shooting of Trayvon Martin, the Black Lives Matter movement took root and has ignited activists in the fight for racial equality around the world. Andre Henry, an award-winning musician and journalist, is one of those people. His experiences made him aware of the challenges and barriers that black people face in their relations with white Americans. And in his new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow, about fighting for black lives, he calls for a revolution. The book is published by Convergent and brings Andre Henry to our show now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You write that the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013 had a strong effect on you. Were you unaware of those feelings until now, until that time? No, I, I had feelings like that. But growing up, when I tried to name some of the experiences of racism that I had, there were a lot of white adults around me that would say things like, don't play the race card and things like that, that I named as gas, racial, racial gaslighting in my book. What do you think uh, the Black Lives Movement means to uh, most black Americans? And what do you think it means to all Americans? Um, you know, that's hard for me to answer as one person, but um, I know that for many people that I know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has been kind of the civil rights movement of our day, you know, that has given a lot of us uh, a lot of space and freedom to name what our experiences are like and the kind of world that we'd like to see in the future. Why do you think that the issue of race continues to be at the forefront? In fact, it's come to the forefront again so many years after Jim Crow laws were overturned by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yeah, well, you know, um, a part of it is that some of that that legislation has actually been challenged by people who want to maintain the racial status quo. Um, and because race is such a foundational part or such a part of the way that our nation was founded and we haven't had a really thoroughgoing type of assessment of the damage that's been done in the name of race and a thoroughgoing project to undo those harms. Well, wasn't the negative, how much of it is political? Wasn't the negative questioning of Judge uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson almost entirely political? Um, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, the uh, the people who went after her were all Republicans, uh, <laughs> and twelve percent of black men and thirty six percent of Latinos voted to reelect Trump in twenty twenty, the highest yes. number of black and Latino support for a Republican candidate in over a decade. Uh, and why yes. do you think those minority voters supported a candidate who's a favorite of of white nationalists? Ooh. Yeah, you know, I write about this in my book, and I think a huge part well, of this Well, that's why I brought it up, because you write about it yeah. in your book. Yeah, I think that a huge part of this is connected to the massive miseducation that's been done on race and racial justice in our schools and in our society, um, to where it's hard for people to trace, you know, this uh, the narrative thread of the ideas of racial hierarchy that were kind of baked into the structure of, of American society up to today. Well, you write that you used to think differently about race than you do now, that, and I'm quoting, America oh, yes. was a fair place where people get what they deserve. You say, I assume yeah. that if I just conducted myself in a respectable way, I'd never have to worry about being jailed or choked to death by a police officer. When did that change for you? 
Um, so it's a gradual process in my life of how that changed. And um, I would say that a big part of that had to do with moving to New York City, where I, I experienced many instances of racial profiling. But one, for instance, was um, I was looking for an apartment in Harlem and I was talking to the landlord on, on the phone and um, he, he got really excited about talking to me. He said, I, I don't really meet many decent people in this neighborhood and uh, he even offered to be my friend. But when I saw him, when, when he finally saw me in person, I, I saw his face melt with disappointment and he refused to rent the apartment to me. And it was experiences like that over time that started to help me understand what people mean when they say systemic racism, because I didn't understand that growing up in the South in Stone Mountain, Georgia. But do you think it was because you were black or because of the way you you dress and present yourself, your hair and such? <laughs> well, I was much more clean cut back then, so I doubt that it had to do with anything the way that I dressed because I was looking very professional. And that's just one example, you know? Um, I can't I can't go into all of the times where I was nearly arrested in New York City just from being randomly stopped and searched for drugs and weapons by police officers who were just sure for no reason whatsoever that I must have drugs and weapons on me. And so they're my experiences, they're the experiences of my friends and family, and also watching, you know, these kinds of experiences in the news that started to help me to understand, oh, it's not just also personal experience, it also that put me on a journey to start really reading about American history, really reading about racial justice and racism. And putting all those things together helped to fill in the gaps of the story that we're told in schools. Are you at all encouraged by the guilty verdicts in the George Floyd and the Ahmaud Arbery cases? Uh, <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and, and part of that is because, um, and I write about Well, the, in, the people who, who lynched Emmett Till were found not guilty. Uh, so yes. things have changed because uh, what, what happened in both George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery cases um, now is considered a form of lynching. Yes, and it took 100 years for us to get an anti-lynching uh, law on the books after Emmett Till's murder. And this is partly why I don't say that I'm very encouraged by these things, because oftentimes um, what we've seen, and Brian Martin, sociologist Brian Martin writes about this, is that sometimes, um, sometimes what happens is that power will use official channels of just use official channels to give a semblance of justice. And so um, I'm not saying that those things are insignificant, but some but things that would make me or the things that make me more encouraged are things like seeing millions of people around the world uh, saying Black Lives Matter. I was thoroughly encouraged by seeing um, companies feeling the pressure to put that message on their websites, to tweet it, mm -hmm. uh, seeing people throw uh, colonizer statues into the sea. Those types of things have encouraged me about the shifting common sense about, about racial justice that's going on, especially the debates around uh, defunding the police and things like that. It just shows that our, our common sense is at least um, in contention. On the other hand, one of the things that emerged from the Black Lives Matter movement was a response from white Americans that didn't sit well with you, and not just strangers, but people you were close to, friends and family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I think that, well, not just, I think we, we've seen a, a lot of resistance and opposition to the movement, and it was very hard to see, you know, people that I had deep relationship with, long relationship with, who refused to really hear what the movement was about and what Black people had been saying since the, the death of Trayvon Martin to now. So instead of discussing the challenges that black Americans are facing and the racial injustices that are woven into our society, you found that many white Americans were more interested in discussing whether racism even exists? Yes, were, were they totally yes. oblivious? Or, 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 or more, I'm assuming more of them would have wanted to talk about how race can be discussed politely. Yes, you know, I think that this goes back to the miseducation about what racism is. So. Yes, many white people did want to argue with me about whether or not racism exists, but when they hear the word racism, they think about the most virulent, most extreme versions of racism, right? So for them, racism means that the Ku Klux Klan is literally marching the street in the middle of the day, and people are walking around saying the N-word all the time, um, but not really understanding the subtle ways, um, the mundane ways, the ordinary ways, the everyday ways that that race that racist power continues to flow throughout society. I mean, for example, when people, uh, black drivers are stopped uh, at, tra at traffic stops for uh, mm -hmm. sometimes nothing. Yeah, I mean, at a much higher rate, black and brown people are stopped by the police and searched for drugs and weapons. Um, even though statistically they're less likely to be carrying contraband. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, studies have shown this. So do you think that uh, this is uh, in part a denial of race as an issue, not wanting to admit that black and minority groups in this country aren't treated equally and, and fairly every day, despite what uh, we see on the news? Absolutely. It's like Dr. Ibram Kendi says that denial is the heartbeat of racism. And I, I write about that in the first chapter about this kind of racial gaslighting, you know, that I don't, when we talk about the kinds of conversations that I was having, it took me a while to realize that in a sense, the white people that I was talking to, even the white people that I considered, you know, close, close friends and family were basically trolling me, you know? <laughs> they weren't actually trying to engage the conversation in good faith. They were just trying to shut the conversation down. And I think that goes back to another one of your questions. I think that's why we're having so much trouble um, making progress on this issue. Why we keep having the same conversations is because people are so unwilling to really uh, engage the the true story of America's history and how we got here. Well, what do you think white Americans aren't understanding about race and what it means to be black or Latino or Asian or Middle Eastern or Native American? Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out a couple of other minority groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a couple of things. One thing that I've noticed is that many white people take this conversation very personally. And so when we talk about this, when we talk about these things, it seems like a lot of white people here, uh, black people like myself saying, you as an individual are a bad person. <laughs> um, and that's a problem, you know? I don't know exactly how to get over that, you know, over that, that hurdle. And I don't think it's my work to, to figure that out. I think white people need to figure that out, but I know that that's a huge hurdle to it. And it also has to do with, we have inherited a story where America is kind of this, um, pure hero, right? Uh, the, the story of, of American progress and the way this country was founded is that we are the paragon of democracy, the biggest example of democracy in the world. And 
it doesn't have to be either or, this binary where America is completely good or America is completely bad. But the story is more nuanced than that. And a lot of people, it seems like that is a very scary nuance to engage. Well, do you see any countries where the situation is better? Better than America? Yeah. In what way do you mean that? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, have a, <laughs> I have a feeling from what I have seen uh, in, in my limited travels that um, racism exists everywhere. It, yes. the, the other is always treated with suspicion. Well, when I think of how racism is everywhere, I think about that as being linked back to the fact that we have these kind of huge empires that really utilize the logic of racial hierarchy in their empire building, like the British Empire, which once covered the entire world. And so white supremacy and anti-blackness exist throughout the world as a, as a product of a global system of racism to begin with. And when we understand those lines, yes, we can look around the world and say that anti-blackness is everywhere, but it kind of defeat, it's kind of besides the point, right? Like, if I'm in California and I say that I'm cold, uh, it might be 60 degrees, right? And so someone in New York is like, well, it's 30 degrees here, it's colder here, but who cares? <laughs> so it doesn't matter that, let's say, in Brazil, Bolsonaro is pretty much uh, doing things to wipe out the uh, indigenous people who were there long before the Portuguese ever arrived. It definitely matters there, but when we're talking in America and an American brings up that example to shut down the conversation about anti-blackness in America, that's where we're getting back into the gaslighting. They're trying to avoid having the conversation, right? Because you as an American here, you can't really do anything about what's happening in Brazil. The people in Brazil definitely, you know, like the black people in Brazil, there is a Black Lives Matter movement in Brazil that's trying to confront those types of things, the anti-blackness there. So for someone here, you know, when they bring up an example like that, which often happened, I write about that in the book too. Someone says, oh, well, I was in Ethiopia as a white person and they treated me badly, or I was in Palestine as a white person, they treated me badly. Okay, I'm sorry for your experience there, <laughs> but we're here in America and you can do something about what's going on in America. You can join a group that is engaging in anti-racist action against anti-blackness here. But isn't part of the problem something that you write uh, about? You say that because most people don't know what racism is, they don't know how to fight it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is why we really need better education about what race and racism is. And we all, and a big part of that is also understanding uh, the history of nonviolent struggle and the role of nonviolent struggle in confronting systems of racism, as has happened here in America. Because both of those things are a part of the problem. Uh, people uh, are constantly misdiagnosing what racism is and then saying, well, the way that we fight it is just is simply through, you know, one on one conversations with people who we think have bad ideas or civil discourse or education or love and all those things have their place. But what we've seen throughout history is that racism has been successfully confronted through people actually organizing uh, civil resistance campaigns. So how do you define racism? Do you have a simple uh, definition? Whew, I wish I did have a simple working definition in my back pocket to go, would, okay, here it is. It would be but... easy for you to then say, oh, this is what it is and deal with it, mister. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and thank God it doesn't just depend on me as an individual. But one thing that I will say is that 
oftentimes what we're missing in these conversations when we're trying to define racism is the issue of power. And so a very simple definition, I would say, and it, I didn't make it up, but it, one that I have used often is that racism is prejudice plus power. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Andre Henry, award-winning musician, writer, and activist. Uh, we're talking about his new book called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. It is published by Convergent. Uh, and this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. One of your chapters is headed, The Right to Remain Angry. So yes. how angry are you? And are, there, <laughs> and are there certain things in particular? Oh, how angry am I? I don't know how to, I don't know how to quantify that. But um, uh, I wrote that chapter uh, just to just not, I guess, talk about black rage, you know, because one of the things that I grew up with was a sense that I didn't have the right to be angry um, from people who want to deny that racism exists, right? If they're saying, well, the problem's not even as bad as you're saying, then the anger's not warranted. And so that anger is still there with me. I don't feel like I necessarily have as much rage anymore, but for people who do feel that way, I want for them to feel like that is a valid emotion when you understand the scope of this problem and its severity. I'd imagine that writing this book tempered your rage just a bit because you addressed the, the, the full range of emotions that, you, that we're dealing with. Um, you think that's true? I think that what has tempered my rage is really the experience of burnout. Because <laughs> no, I, I was enraged. I was enraged for a full year. You know, when I finally, um, when I finally felt free to admit that, yes, I am angry about this. This does anger me. I stayed in that place for about a year and I found myself in a deep depression because of it. Mm. I didn't say, okay, well, I need to stop being angry, but I realized that I needed better fuel. <laughs> and I found that hope and joy is valid, first off, as someone doing this work and someone who cares about this, this stuff, but also it's better fuel. It, it sustains longer. You write, today, I honor and trust my anger. And you yes. say you believe that anger at injustice can be healthy and productive. Absolutely, absolutely. Anger is, this, is an energy, right? And that can, that can provoke us to get out into the streets. Um, it can fill us with passion and drive. Um, and, and it's also the body's way of telling us that something is wrong. And that is a that's an important thing for us to do is to trust our bodies when when we get that information. And also, I also I really do believe that anger um, might be an indication of what our vision of tomorrow might be, because anger tells us something is not right, which hints that you might have some idea of how things ought to be. So lean into that. You know, what what how do you think things should be different on the flip side of that anger? is a vision of tomorrow. And the vision of tomorrow is really where change begins. What do you think white Americans don't understand about the anger that black people feel? Oh, so much. I think that white people don't understand so much about the anger because it really, if you're not on the receiving end, if you're not, if you're not a target of this anti-black system, it's just impossible to know what it feels like 
in uh, in the body. And so that's one thing that that's just one level of, of understanding that white people will never know. Um, and then to kind of see to see anti-blackness kind of everywhere you know it's not just the microaggressions that we experience at work in church or school it's also you know looking at the news and seeing things like you know african migrants caught up in this ukraine russia conflict you know being detained in a way that might remind you of how we were talking about latino immigrants being detained in 2017 2018 under the trump administration you know, it's it's kind of everywhere. Well, we did so, just um, change our border policy, and uh, that was keeping uh, any number of migrants uh, out. So are we getting better? Here's what I'll say. When we look at the, the story of racial progress in America, it seems that every time that we take a step forward, there is a backlash. <laughs> and that keeps us from making the types of substantial, you know, um, and radical reforms that need to be made. You say your book isn't about trying to convert racists, but rather, quote, about walking away from those kinds of people and joining yeah. those who are trying to expand the global revolution for racial justice. And you argue that we need a revolution. Absolutely. Well, well as, as the Beatles sang, we all want to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yes, yes. Um, and Dr. King actually said this, too. Near the end of his life, he was saying that, you know, there's a quote from the last year of his, from an interview from his last year, or the, the year before, 1967, where he says that he used to think that you could go about reforming, you know, with a little reform to this institution and a little reform to that institution. But he realized, in his own words, that what we need is a revolution of the whole society, a revolution of values. You, uh, you argued, well, that we need a revolution, but you say you're fighting for a world that ought to be. What would that world look like? <laughs> that world would be one where we have, in the words of Alex Vitale, a robust democracy that is based on community care and where everyone has their needs met, regardless of uh, race and class and gender and sexual orientation and all that. Well, then we still have a long way to go. How far are we from where we ought to be? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm just one person, so I can't see it comprehensively or exhaustively. Um, one thing that does encourage me, and I think that you have hinted at this throughout our conversation, we are not where we were. And that is an occasion for hope, you know. Um, but there is a long way to go. And we can get there, you know, if we're willing to organize the types of civil, civil resistance campaigns that we've seen in the past and to keep them going. And I do feel very much in my heart right now that, you know, the time is more dire than they, they, than they have been. The stakes are higher than they have been in recent years. Well, the title of your book is very provocative, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm assuming that that refers to things that have happened in the past, because you, you tell a story of a white family you were very close with who refused to acknowledge yes. that anti-black racism following the Ferguson riots in Ferguson, Missouri, that protected the deadly shooting of Michael Brown by police officer Darren Wilson. Uh, yeah. 
they, they refused to acknowledge it. Also, a fellow theology classmate who stated that racism is not a priority of God. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what your question is there. <laughs> well, my, my question, I, I was just doing a follow-up uh, to what you yeah. were saying, that maybe things are improving a bit, but... Uh-huh but not to the point where you would change the title of your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. (laughs) Well, you know, and this is like I explained to the white friends I couldn't keep in the open letter that this book is based on, because it was a blog before it was a book, is that the, the reason why we ended up having to part ways was entirely based on their refusal to engage in this, you know, to engage this conversation, to come alongside you know, their black loved ones and to fight for a world where we were, where we will be saved. So, you know, um, in a sense, you know, things are, I guess it's less of a statement about things getting better as much as hinting at on the other side of that journey that I've been on and that transformation that I've been going through. I found new relationships with people who do share my values and, and have a similar vision for the world and are doing similar work to bring that world about so they are out there (laughs) well but uh, i remember way back in the 50s and 60s when people were debating over whether the jesus was white or whether he was black yes (laughs) we we don't hear that anymore is has that just been resolved or am i not i just me not hearing it anymore oh i still hear that i think megan kelly as recently as 2014 was arguing that jesus was a white man on tv and she was very passionate about it because someone said that santa because there was someone i think that was imagining santa claus is black and she just brought it into the conversation and so the conversation about you know jesus being black which i don't think was ever really about jesus's skin color as much as Jesus's social location when compared to contemporary race categories, because, you know, race didn't really exist in first century Palestine when Jesus walked the earth in the way that it does today. Um, But I still see people very much invested in identifying Jesus with whiteness and with white people. And I think it's very important to remember, you know, for at least for people for whom these conversations are relevant, like Christians and all that, uh, that throughout scripture, throughout the Christian Bible, that when when you see God entering these stories, that God oftentimes takes sides with the under with the underdog, with the marginalized. And so part of the theological argument, you know, you know, I took two theology degrees, so I could really go into this, is that um, you know, Jesus the the theology the, sorry, the theological argument is that God incarnated God's self in the person of Jesus Christ. And so God could have incarnated God's self into any person, into Caesar, into Herod, into some rich person, but instead um incarnated God's self into a carpenter on the wrong side of empire. You explore in this book how the historical divides between black people and non-black people are expressed through our, some of our most mundane, mundane interactions and why that struggle won't be resolved through civil discourse, diversity, hires, interracial relationships, or education. Yeah. Uh, as I asked you earlier, you say that we need a revolution. Absolutely. Well, what, what would that revolution entail? Um, I think that we can look at one of the most popular proponents of this kind of revolution that has ever lived, and that's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we don't get enough 
of his, uh, uh, we don't get enough of his work, the depth of his work and his thought around what he envisioned around nonviolent struggle. And this is what I'm referring to. One part that we're, okay, so in all those things that you listed, those things are great and those things have a role, but we really are leaving out the role of civil resistance throughout history that has been able to successfully confront these systems of racial violence. And so what Dr. King talked about in a Stanford, um, I think it's more, most clearly articulated in his speech at Stanford in 1967, where he talks about nonviolence massively organized and militantly developed. So what needs to happen is that uh, there need to be strategic civil resistance campaigns that take on specific um, structural issues of racism and campaigns need to be organized and executed until victories are gained. We suggest that people of color divest from whiteness. What does that mean? Well, a part of a part of that argument, essential to that argument, is understanding that we all get the same education, right? We are all told the same story about this anti-black world that we live in. And so one of the successes of this anti-black world is to get black people to also believe in the lies about black people. And we saw this very much in the 90s, especially where, you know, there was this widespread idea that black youth were just, you know, super predators and prone to criminality. And there were black parents that believed that and talked to their children that way. Um, there's also a, a historical um, dynamic where within that context, where we're all kind of pressured to assimilate into white culture and to white values and all of that. And so when I say we need to divest from whiteness, I'm saying that we need to reject that project. You know, we don't need to become like white people to be valuable human beings. We don't need to straighten our hair. We don't need to talk a certain way, dress a certain way. Uh, we are valuable as we are as black people. And in fact, we need to get in touch with our ancestors and our ancestral traditions and, and their religions, their spirituality, the way that their hairstyles, all that kind of stuff that comes from Africa for, for us. But doesn't it vary where, where you from where you, by where you live? For example, I uh, recently talked to filmmakers who talked about how the Civil War is seen differently uh, throughout this country. Uh, in the South, it isn't uh, it isn't even seen as having been about slavery. They still mm -hmm. many places call it the War of the Northern Invasion or mm -hmm. uh, uh, or uh, a war for states' rights. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the in the North, of course, I was taught that slavery was at the the key factor in right. in the uh, the Civil War. So uh, even though you say that New York ain't so great, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it I mean, I think I think New York is great. I just really came to understand what systemic racism looks like from living in New York City. But let me ask you, Leonard, do you think that it's valid for people to see that particular thing differently? Uh, no, I think that the Civil War was about, <laughs> it was not about states' rights, it was about slavery. Right, exactly. And when you read the the uh, the documents of, 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 of the secession papers from states yeah. from the South that were leaving the Union, many of them named explicitly that they were doing this over slavery. And so in the South, and this is, you know, I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, where the Ku Klux Klan was resurrected in that very city, on that very rock, right? Um, 
they launched this widespread uh, propaganda campaign, in a sense, to reframe the the cause and the motivations of the Civil War, which is a part of the racial gaslighting dynamic that I'm talking about, and also a way that oppressive power often works. Like that's one of the tactics that sociologist Brian Martin names is that oppressors will try to reframe what happened. And that's partly why we're in this mess right now is this is a part of the miseducation that so many of us receive. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying this conversation with Andre Henry. Uh, if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212 212- 209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and, and thank you very much. Uh, you, you write that after watching Philandro Castile breathe his last breath after he was fatally shot during a traffic stop, uh, you, you say that you made three commitments to yourself. You want to go over them? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the first commitment that I made to myself was to no longer let the news determine when I would talk about racism. The second was that I would learn everything that I can about systemic racism and nonviolent struggle. And the third was that I would find space to invest my body in the struggle for black freedom. So should we go into some of those things with de- in detail? Uh, we do sure. see regularly, we, we, uh, see news stories that involve race uh, mm-hmm. in which, well, in some cases the victims are white, in some cases the victims are, are people of color. And when I say people of color, I'm talking about a full range because we've been seeing mm-hmm. a lot of anti-Asian uh, mm-hmm. violence and uh, a, a certain amount of anti-Muslim violence as well in yes. this country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, I found at the time when I made that that commitment that it seemed like people were responding to these incidents as though racism was like a, a cold or something like that. Like it goes away 
and then it comes back seasonally. And so I felt like I needed to speak up as often as possible um, about racism, racism so that people could understand that it doesn't go away. <laughs> no, it's something that is here with us. And unless we go after it in a sustained way, we'll never be able to cure it. And then the second one, you determined to learn everything you could about racism in our time. Mm-hmm. Is, has a lot been written about it? And uh, is, uh, is any of it really valuable? Oh, so much has been written about it over hundreds of years, you know? <laughs> and nonviolent struggle was also a part of what I decided that I, that I wanted to understand because I wanted to understand why the civil rights movement worked. And so what I found first off was I started with Just Mercy, which was a popular book at the time by Brian Stevenson. And Brian Stevenson just illuminated so much about the criminal justice system that I just didn't know, <laughs> um, which took me to Michelle Alexander's work. And then, you know, the library is endless, you know, on understanding uh, racism in our time and linking it to the story of racism throughout history, as well as nonviolent struggle. I'm still reading to this day about uh, both of those things. Well, it's interesting that James Baldwin, who's one of the greatest writers on this topic, uh, Absolutely. also wrote a book of, from the viewpoint of a white man, a gay white man. Which book was that again? Uh, it's called Giovanni's Room. Yes, yes. It takes okay, place I in Paris. Yes, yes, yes. His first book was Go Tell It on the Mountain, which obviously revealed what he was thinking at that time. Yes. James Baldwin became a huge influence of mine when I read The Fire Next Time, around that time uh, that that we're talking about, because I didn't know that (laughs) all I had was kind of a whitewashed version of Dr. King, where everyone is like, you know, uh, there's this popular notion that Dr. King spoke very nicely to everyone and that's why he's, you know, this the greatest freedom fighter that ever lived. And even though that's not true, <laughs> um, uh, not true that he, that he never offended anyone, to be clear. But James Baldwin's work was so articulate. And I feel like also he, he displays a lot of humility in his writing, but also there was a lot of legitimate anger. And it opened my eyes to the ways that we can speak about racism as Black people. And I I remember admiring him and Stokely Carmichael and Fannie Lou Hamer and saying, I want to speak like this. And then uh, the the, the third one you said, which was most important, was that you promised to find some way to involve your body in the struggle to end racism. Literally your body? Yeah, absolutely, in several ways. I mean, eventually I would end up marching the streets and organizing protests and all those kinds of things. But before then, um, there was uh, there were a series of performance art that I engaged in. The first lugging a 100-pound boulder around the Los Angeles area to show people, to demonstrate to people, like, this is the weight that anti-Blackness can lay on the black psyche and so take it everywhere with me to class on job interviews to dinner with friends you know um and then later on wearing a suit jacket with uh the names of people slain by police uh written all over it in white and stop killing us written on the back and things like that and what was the response of people who saw that uh, you know, there were surprisingly little responses, honestly. Um, a lot of people did not say anything, but it was interesting to see the way that uh, carrying that boulder around kind of 
um, unveiled some of the dynamics around this conversation that are usually invisible. So people jumping over it or scooting around it and or occasionally, you know, making a joke about it in order to kind of, you know, uh, I think diffuse some of the awkwardness. And then a couple of times, you know, there would be someone who gets it right away and might say, you know, well, what's that? You know, the white man's burden. Um, or, you know, uh, someone saying something really inept about it. But for the, for, for the most part, I was surprised by how much silence there was, especially because one of the places that I took it the most was to church when I was playing the piano. And, you know, most people in those sanctuaries that I, that I went to didn't say anything. Well, th this had been a topic for church people for a long time. And one of my favorite former gospel singers who became a pop singer, Sam Cooke, recorded a change is going to come yes but that you think that change has even partially come yes i do think that it is partially come right because the white the that white would have been a weird song a change is going to partially come <laughs> i guess it will <laughs> yes right i guess it will oh yes so the whites only signs are no longer on in restaurant windows and over water fountains and you know we can ride the bus in an integrated way and all that and so in some ways change has come right but in los angeles where i live you know 40 uh the the black people are eight percent of the population and 40 percent of the home of the unhoused right so in some ways change has not come yeah. <laughs> uh, or it's or it's not been fully realized yeah people are may be surprised by just how many racial issues, incidents have occurred with the Los Angeles Police Department, considering mm -hmm. the fact that California is considered one of the most, uh, LA especially, one of the most liberal parts of the country. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing. And, you know, I think that it shows, in the same way that, you know, Malcolm X years ago once said that um, Mississippi is America, right? If if part of the house is on fire, the house is on fire. <laughs> you <know>? Yes. <laughs> we, uh, we played uh, a track, part of a track yes. of yours, which addressed some of these issues, but mm -hmm. not all of your music does. Um, yeah. How was there any kind of relationship between your music and, and writing this book? Oh, absolutely. So this book is kind of, uh, or is at least part memoir. And so the time in my life that I'm writing about, you know, I was writing songs during that time because that's my, you know, that's been my primary thing. I've been an artist my whole life and been a singer songwriter. And I was processing a lot of the things that I'm, that I wrote about in the book through songs. And I write some of the stories of how those songs were written. And so as I was writing the book, I thought of, you know, that catalog of music that I wrote during that time and depended on that set list really to come up with some of the things that I, some of the ideas that I would unpack in these chapters. So for instance, there's the chapter called Breaking Up With White Jesus. Well, years before that, I wrote a song called Playing Hooky, where that really is the big idea there. I'm speaking with Andre Henry about his book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives, published by a division of of Penguin Random House, uh, and uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, 
What do you think the effect of interracial couples is on race in this country these days? That's such a great question because I have heard so often, you know, people's hope that interracial relationships will make conversation moot, right? And oftentimes what we see is some of those dynamics of anti-Blackness uh, playing out in intimate relationships. And this is somewhat historic. So for instance, in the 1960s, uh, or 1950s, 1960s, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, for instance, uh, they were very much about just interracial harmony in general. They, their vision of what a racially just America looked like was expressed through this idea of a, a beloved community. And they would sing, you know, verses in that historic civil rights song, we shall not be moved. One of those verses was black and white together. We shall not be moved with their arms linked. But by the 60s, when the when the sentiment started moving more towards black power and uh, there was more of a separatist sentiment emerging in the movement, uh, some of those very same relationships, those interracial relationships that were formed in the civil rights movement, started having a lot of trouble. And I heard people talking the same way during the Black Lives Matter era, <laughs> as you know, more Black consciousness was uh, emerging. And I, I write about it in my own book, The Black Love Chapter, You know, some of the racial dynamics that I saw there. So basically what I'm saying is that the idea that mixed babies will save us is just false. You know, people actually have to intentionally deal on a personal level with the lies about uh, Black people with anti-Black sentiment that they might harbor in order for these intimate relationships to be the kinds of safe places that they might imagine. Well, mixed-race people tend to be uh, categorized as Black, aren't even, even, no matter how light their skin is. Oh yeah, very very true. Um, especially you know if you if your complexion shows that you know you're not going to be you know it's like I say say to people I'm 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 pretty fair skinned I'm not fair skinned to be uh, mistaken for white but when I'm pulled over by the police no one asks if I'm Jamaican or African like I'm just black. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, suddenly it's all and nobody asks whether your ancestors were slaves or not. Exactly. And no and no one asks, you know, uh, I write about in the book how my bloodline, as far back as we've traced it, uh, begins in Westmoreland, Jamaica, between a Scottish man and a, probably an enslaved woman named Bida, right? But, but the fact that I have, the fact that my bloodline begins with a white man and a black woman is, you know, completely irrelevant when it comes down to that, to that level of lived experience, especially so many, so many centuries afterward. But in that Black Love chapter, I also, you know, I write about how, like, you know, I've, uh, <laughs> uh, for instance, you know, one woman that I met on Tinder uh, kept saying the N-word to me, knowing that I'm a racial justice activist and knowing how much that might offend, offend and how, like, when we're not actually addressing these dynamics on the personal level, uh, intimate relationships, and even sometimes institutionally, I guess I could combine these two chapters, we're entering into spaces where we're going to experience racism on a personal level. Do you think she was being cute or insensitive? Um, I think she thought she was being cute while being insensitive. <laughs> it is interesting that in the debate over reparations in one of the southern states now, uh, whether there should be reparations. Uh, they're trying to determine whether they, it should only apply to people who are descendants of slaves or any people of color. Hmm. 
that because they've the, also been affected by all of the laws, you know, Jim Crow laws and and such. Right. That is really interesting. And I tend to have a more systemic idea of what reparations means. So, I mean, I'm not against, you know, people getting checks. That's fine. Um, but I also think that when I think about, you know, what can be done in order to address the harm that has been done to us, I, I think that it also has to do with, you know, having universal health care, right? Which uh, or um, universal education and things like that, which at the end of the day benefit everyone. I think we're, we're looking at a system that was built on the idea of racial hierarchy. And so the way that we undo that is just by creating, I shouldn't say just as though it's simple, but the way that we undo that, I think, is by creating a, ro a robust democracy. Because when we look at what has been, been done to Black people throughout centuries, I feel like what we find is that no human being should be treated that way. And so the solutions I think should, or would logically, um, would logically roll out in ways that just provide a better world for everyone. You write that, uh, we, we have very little time left, but I wanted to address this. You, said, yeah. you write that maybe it isn't up to white Americans to declare themselves to be allies to black people, but rather that they should wait for acknowledgement from black people for the status, and that perhaps black people don't need to fight for a seat at the table, but rather, quote, black people may need to rethink the fight for the proverbial seat at the table in white institutions. We need tables of our own. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and there's so much that could be said about that. But basically, you know, oftentimes we talk about having a seat at the table without talking about the work that's being done at that table. And if what people are doing at that table is preserving the white power structure, then why should we want to seat there anyway, right? And also, essential to social movements is having some kind of institutional power. And if we are depending on people who are reluctant to share power with us, then it seems like the best course of action is for us to create some some type of institutions of our own so that we can stop having that argument and have the power that we need in order to pursue our freedom. Well, in summing things up, you write about wide open space. What do you mean by wide open space and what does wide open space do for us? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. So that's from the last chapter. And I think that if, if I could summarize what white supremacy and anti-blackness tries to do is I think it just tries to confine Black people into a mold, you know, into a very small compartment, into stereotypes about Blackness, or into um, desires for Black people to assimilate into the types of people who comply with this racist status quo. And this is a really big idea, but I think that there is something to be said about breaking free from the expectations of white of whiteness on us and going into this world where things are kind of undefined. We don't know really what a racially just world will look like. We've never lived in it. <laughs> and so there is kind of this undefined, um, vast expanse before us in exploring what life is like outside of the confines that white supremacy has tried to build for us. Well. There are some people who will always be bigoted. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. many Jewish people thought that uh, anti-Semitism would be quelled to some degree after World War II, but we still see it yeah. with the, 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 the same people who are racists who march in Charlottesville and say the Jews will not replace us. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I do think that there will always be anti-black sentiment in the world. The but the concern is that it does not have systemic power. That's what we need. It's like what Stokely Carmichael said. If a man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Mm-hmm. Andre Henry is an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He writes a column for Religion News Service. He's the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. And we've been discussing his book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and hard pills to swallow about fighting for black lives from Convergent Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been my pleasure. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview and to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopit at Large, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give, the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives by Andre Henry. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And on this, the final day of Women's History Month, we're offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more. But that offer ends today because Black, because Women's History Month ends today. But either way... We hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So why not show that you appreciate what we do here by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dials that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Monday when Daniel Treisman will discuss a new book he has co-authored called Spin Dictators. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.